On this week's episode of Empower, our CEO, Judson Robinson III, joins the National Urban League's podcast for the movement to talk about the spread of COVID-19 in the black community and it not just being Houston's problem. Empower is a podcast presented by the Houston Area Urban League that serves to inform young professionals about the Urban League, its programs, and the various civic and social topics pertinent to the community they serve. We dedicate today's episode to Ben Adams Sr., a longtime community activist in the Houston area and a member and leader of the NAACP. Ben's life and dedication to the cause of civil rights will never be forgotten. He is a friend and a father to us all. God bless you, Ben. From the National Urban League, this is For the Movement, a podcast that discusses persistent policy, social, and civil rights issues affecting communities of color. I'm Clint Odom, Senior Vice President of Policy and Executive Director of the Washington Bureau. And I'm Tony Wiley, Director of Advocacy for the National Urban League. Tony, it feels like I haven't seen you in a long time. How was the uh, 4th of July weekend for you? Well, the weekend was fine. We didn't really celebrate the 4th. We definitely listened to Frederick Douglass's speech. We also mm-hmm. had like a little air show. Uh, I think we had like a plane and a stealth bomber and three helicopters fly overhead. It was really impressive on July 4th. I don't know what was going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't see the stealth bomber. I mean, that's the whole point, right? You didn't see it. Well, actually see them, but I mean, with your eyes, but probably not on radar. I think that's what makes them. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, did you you do that here in the Washington, D.C. area, or did you go back to Alabama? No, I, I would have loved to go back to Alabama to do that, but my mom is very uh, apprehensive about me traveling there because they're reaching, you know, a little bit of a spike and they have rolled back their reopening plans a little bit. You have inspired me back back before this pandemic even had a name. You were always the, the cautious one in the office wearing a face mask. This is back in, in February. You're a former EMT as well, right? Yes, I was a volunteer EMT for a short while in Alabama. And, you know, I have a background in public health. I'm really concerned about what's going on, especially in the South. I was very shocked to learn that a lot of first responders like EMTs and firefighters, as well as police officers, have been under quarantine due to COVID-19. And leading up to the July 4th weekend, which we know is a time where we don't usually have to deal with the pandemic, but there's still a lot going on because people are drinking, people are driving, people are using fireworks, which they don't probably need to use. So there's a lot going on in the world of the first responder during a holiday weekend, especially a long holiday weekend when everybody's pretty much at home. What's the hang up with people wearing masks? This is a, a controversial notion in, in Texas and in other parts of the country. Why don't, I don't understand why people can't wear a mask and why that's deemed to be uh, an abridgment of people's freedoms. Do you, do you understand that? You know, as someone in public health, I personally don't, but I can understand why people who are not used to being in a setting like that would see a mask as being uncomfortable. 
it's just not the norm here in the United States. If you've traveled, it's quite common in other countries, especially in Asia, for people to wear face masks, not even during a pandemic. I've traveled to Asia before, everybody was fine, but just because the mass number of people, people tend to wear facial coverings to protect not only themselves, but other people in case they have any kind of germ bear. And it, it keeps the pressure off the system. And I think right. that's the thing when you're dealing with a million people in a, a very small geographic location and you only have a limited number of doctors and hospitals and beds that you want to be mindful of the system. And I think that's where a lot of countries have gotten it right because they understand that it's not a me thing, it's a us thing. And they're trying to help all the first responders, all the medical workers on the front line and their fellow citizens not get into a bad situation. That's where I guess American individualism and freedom and independence has failed us during this pandemic is that we don't see it as an us thing. We see it as a me thing and it's inconvenient to me and it's uncomfortable for me and I'm okay my family's okay, so why do I have to be? I saw that uh, President Bolsonaro of Brazil has recently contracted COVID, and he was one of the most uh, conspicuous leaders out there who were skeptical about, about the virus, its transmissibility, uh, and just really kind of almost mocked the virus. And so it was very interesting to see that you know, he has it. And, uh, and I'm wondering if that will be a wake-up call to other leaders around the world and within the United States that this thing is serious and, and anybody can get it, especially if we don't take these basic precautions. I think it's really important. As Americans, we definitely want to celebrate our freedom to be as we are. But just like in the civil rights movement, one person is not free until everybody is free. Our lives don't matter unless all lives matter. And so we have to make sure that we are thinking about the collective because the collective is what makes our country what it is, not the individual, but our collective ability to be free and healthy makes our country great. And if we lack on that on any part, if any group of people can't be healthy and can't be safe and can't be free, then we fail to be the beacon of democracy and freedom and liberty in this world. Just something to think about. Liberty is not always about you personally. I'm thinking about it right now. I, I couldn't find a better way to put it. We're pleased to have with us today, Mr. Judson W. Robinson III, the president and CEO of the Houston Area Urban League. Mr. Robinson previously served as deputy commissioner for Harris County, Precinct 2, and from 1991 to 1997, Judson served the city of Houston as the vice mayor pro tem and as city council member at large, position five. While serving on the city council, Judson chaired numerous committees, including the Committee on Redevelopment and Revitalization, the Committee on Fiscal Affairs, the Committee on Minority and Women-Owned Business, and the Committee on Regulatory Affairs, among others. Uh, Judson's a proud graduate of Fisk University in Nashville, and like my own father, a proud member of Omega Psi Phi fraternity. So Judson, welcome to the show. And, and we hope uh, this, this will be a first of, of many times we'll have you come back and talk about what's going on in, in one of the most uh, important 
uh, metro areas in the country. Americans have been antsy and tired of being cooped up in this pandemic. So when states began easing restrictions, uh, people flocked to get back to their normal lives. And perhaps predictably, the coronavirus reminded us that it was still here and hotspots have developed across the country. One of those places is Texas and unfortunately, Houston in particular, where it seems that each day we make a new record on the number of new coronavirus cases. The most recent count shows nearly 200,000 positive tests, including more than 35,000 in Harris County, uh, which of which Houston is the seat, and uh, nearly 50,000 of confirmed cases in the Houston region. According to Johns Hopkins, Harris County has the 11th highest coronavirus count in the United States. And in the Houston region alone, there are nearly 600 dead as a result of COVID-19. The mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, was recently sounded the alarm that hospitals in the area are on the verge of running out of capacity. So we can't think of a better person to have with us today than Judson Robinson, who by virtue of his standing as a community leader and a former elected and someone who probably has a lot of views on, on what he would do if he were back in government today. Uh, we wanna thank you, Judson, for sounding the alarm about a disturbing trend that shows that African-Americans uh, have a very high likelihood of meeting death as a result of uh, being exposed to the virus and uh, Latinx people as well. And of course, there is a major population of Latinx people in Houston. So welcome, Judson. Uh, tell us what it feels like in Houston. Help paint a picture of what you're seeing on the ground level. Well, Clint, thank you very much. And my thanks to the National Urban League and, and the dedicated staff and team of folks who are, you know, helping to make sure that the backbone of the organization, that being from a policy standpoint, from a research standpoint, uh, all the things that help to create uh, legitimacy of our work, we appreciate what you guys are doing on the front lines, if you will, from the standpoint of just being a respected organization that uh, has a um, tremendous history of trying to care for people who are uh, unfortunately the ones that are often people of color. Staying true to that, we're seeing huge challenges in Houston with trying to ensure that the message that people are receiving is consistent. We went as far as to increase the dialogue between groups who typically uh, do not necessarily work together, although they might have some of the same clientele, but to really be sure that we're trying to do all that we can to keep Houston as, as safe as possible. We've seen a disparity, obviously, with African-Americans and Latinos being uh, disparately impacted at higher numbers than others per capita. And of course, we're trying to ensure that we get the message out to people and, and just doing individually, you know, things that we can to help curtail the, the spike and to ensure that the spread uh, is, is controlled as best possible. So little things like when we go to the barbershop, we take the extra mask that we might have. When we're talking to our friends and neighbors, we're showing uh, our concern for them by wearing masks, we're washing our hands as frequently as possible. We're uh, having um, a regular discussion with our staff about the importance of, of how we serve 
and try to do it in a safe manner. So there's a lot of things that I think that we can all do. But right now in Houston, people are very, very alarmed. But at the same time, we still have people that have not taken this thing seriously enough. And so my fear is that in the coming weeks, we'll start to see the the deaths uh, start to move uh, in a more traditional pattern that we had seen in the past. That's very concerning because you know we're up tremendously in terms of the number of cases now that we're reporting. Uh, so the disease seems to have kind of found a way to be more spike oriented. And it's a different disease today than it was several months ago. And so as it mutates and finds new ways to infect people, uh, we've got to just stay on the forefront. So, you know, me as a city leader, uh, as a person who's studying this stuff on a regular basis, I'm scared, I'm worried. My fear, I I wrote recently in the Houston Business Journal, is that um, we will be distracted by the next big thing, maybe another unfortunate police shooting or killing or something, and, and then you know people out protesting again, and and not looking at the the bigger picture of how do I make sure that my family is safe. Is it your sense, Judson, that the protests that are happening as a result of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis is contributing in any way uh, to the increased number of COVID cases, or do you think uh, it may be more related to reopening? of the state and and Houston in particular? I think that they both obviously have to have some impact. I don't think there's been any study done that shows, well, the people that attended the protests are having increases uh, and the people that that are reopening are not. I don't think there's been that that type of comparison. I think what they're just looking at is overall exposure to one another uh, and what that's doing to uh, these cities where there's been protests and there's been faster reopening than it has been in other cities, namely Georgia, Texas, and of course, California. So, you know, we all kind of did the same thing. And we're also very uh, divisive as states, I would say. So we've got, you know, a lot of folks who don't believe wearing a mask uh, or being a leader wearing a mask. They're sending the right signal for their party. I think it's political. And I think others are, are trying to make sure that those who are African-American leaders, most of them are wearing masks. And so, therefore, you see most African-Americans wearing masks. Right. So it's re- really interesting. Uh, and I want to touch, I want to talk a little bit more about this point. So on July 2nd, Governor Greg Abbott reversed his longstanding refusal to order people to wear masks. In, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the governor had gone so far as to refuse to give authority to cities to impose requirements to to wear a mask. So this was a pretty big deal when the governor just recently reversed himself on and requiring people to wear a mask. How has that executive order been viewed uh, in Houston and around Texas? I I, I imagine there's gotta be some controversy around uh, this reversal. Yeah, most of the the people I talked to said, well, what, what took him so long? Or they said, finally what was required to see the light. I mean, the numbers are there. Uh, the examples were uh, all over the place in, in terms of what was happening. We tracked this stuff daily. We could see what was happening. The reluctance was just really shocking and disappointing to many of us. I think we try to be respectful in Houston, It's in Texas, uh, maybe not so much in Texas, but certainly in Houston. <laughs> but but uh, 
you know, I think when your own team starts saying, hey, coach, this isn't looking good, we probably ought to, we ought to punt. I think that that probably had a lot to do with it. But certainly the more liberal voices of our communities uh, were against um, a lot of the actions of the state on the very front end because we knew that we were going to be disparately impacted and we knew that it was kind of a political slant to uh, support the president. And, and certainly, I think Dr. Fauci and others have really tried to be respectful, but at the same time, you know, use the science. Let's look at the science and not the party. It was just unfortunate it took that much for, for that to happen. And we don't know the countless numbers of people that got infected or will likely die as, as a result of just some of the actions of our state house. One of the vastly underappreciated aspects of that July 2nd order in which the governor ordered the overwhelming majority of Texans to wear masks was an exception to the yeah. rule right. that said you have to wear masks except if you're a poll worker or a voter. And in that instance, you don't have to wear a mask or if you are going to church, uh, you don't have to wear a mask. Can you help me understand what the explanation for those two exemptions are and contextualize for us why in the hell there'd be an exemption for people wearing a mask who are voting? I think that, that sometimes we don't think hard enough about how we suppress votes. What is the strategy? What's the process? What are some examples in which it's, it's done? And certainly, as I stated a couple of minutes ago, African-Americans, I think, and Latinos are certainly aware of the disparate impact of the coronavirus on their families and themselves, and certainly want to do all that they can to minimize risk. Uh, But when your president is not wearing a mask and kind of downplaying the importance of it, then when it comes time to uh, stand in the line and, and, and vote, and you know that you're going to be around people who might not have a mask on, well, you know, I might think twice about going standing in that line. You know, I don't have the option uh, to vote by mail. They decided we can't do that, which would have certainly helped a lot of our senior population and people who are suffering with one illness or another who don't want to go out and stand in the uh, in the environment. Once again, you have this subtle little twist of the screw, <laughs> no pun intended, that creates one more reason for me to think twice about do I really want to participate in the political process this year. So you mentioned that Texans can't vote by mail. It, 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 now, this, this actually went up to the Supreme Court recently. And, and tell me if I got this right. But If you want to vote by mail in Texas, you have to have a reason to do so. I'm going to be overseas that day. I'm in the military or I'm in school out of state. Those are legitimate, uh, acceptable reasons in Texas to not vote. But if I say I'm concerned about being exposed to the coronavirus, that is not an acceptable excuse under Texas law. Is that the case? And can you help our listeners understand, again, the context here, why this is such a big deal. That is, in fact, the case, Clint. And again, our mortality rates are higher because we are so much sicker than other people with 
diabetes or high blood pressure or some other illness that jeopardizes my overall quality of health. If, in fact, I lead in in that negative space of of, uh, illnesses, then certainly I don't want to put myself at any greater jeopardy or risk by doing something that uh, could, could hurt me or my family. So again, if I'm, if, I, if I'm not allowed, because I feel like, based upon all the medical conditions that I have, that it wouldn't be a wise choice for me to go stand in the line, then you're telling me I cannot mail in a ballot. So because like you said, I'm not overseas. I'm not under one of the other qualifying conditions that would allow a vote by mail ballot. So therefore, when we talk about people's liberty being challenged and and it's not American for you know you to tell me I can't open my business now or you know I have to wear a mask. Why doesn't it apply also to the person that says you're going to be the judge of my health and, and my condition and tell me that I have to stand in a line with people who are not masked up and risk my life to vote? Well, that's not fair either. That's not American either. But right. for some reason, it is the law. Again, we just have to really, you know, I appreciate the policy work that you guys do, and we're here on the street, your foot soldiers every day, uh, to try to make these these messages known, to try to make people aware of how discrimination and racism permeates in a modern society. This is exactly an example of that. So let's talk a little bit about testing. We, we know that the only way we're going to bend the curve or, or get ahead of the curve is to be able to have a robust system of testing. I've seen stories about testing locations in Texas and and some even in Houston. I think some of your congressional delegation members have been instrumental in bringing some of that testing capability uh, to the area. But as, as we read the data, on a per capita basis, Texas is not testing anywhere near what it needs to. According to the data that we've seen, about 45,000 tests are being administered today, which puts Texas 42nd out of 52 jurisdictions in the United States being examined. What's worse, and we heard this from uh, Mayor Turner today, one out of every four people tested in the Houston area are testing positive. So you've got a deadly combination of low rates of testing and very high incidence of positives. What's the testing capability in Houston? Is it where it needs to be? And and if you could write the rules, how would you improve uh, testing capability in Houston and Texas generally? Well, you know, Texas is a very, very large state. Houston alone is uh, over 600 square miles just in Houston. Uh, We've got two major test sites uh, in Harris County. Uh, and there's a number of other uh, smaller testing sites that are, if you will, almost like pop-up shops in, in different uh, churches and, and community centers and schools and things of that nature uh, on a sporadic and kind of a rolling basis. Trying to be everywhere people need to be. I, I keep my uh, phone number for testing uh, handy because people call me almost on a regular basis to find out, you know, hey, I want to get a test wherever I go. And we have various phone numbers that you can call. I keep one on my phone. I can just, you know, send someone a quick text of the number and what the process is actually like. Because it is a large state, because we are a big city, 
and then trying to make sure there's enough of the test kits available. I think the two larger locations, they have about 600 tests per day and they run out between 12 o'clock noon and two o'clock each day. Uh, so we don't have enough of the test kits available. And I was watching a documentary uh, not too long ago, and it was just talking about the complexity of what testing is. And, and certainly it's not the fact that we don't have enough nasal swabs and people to actually be on site to, uh, to do the test. The challenge comes in, my understanding is once the sample has been collected, now you have to send it to the lab. And the lab uh, only has so much capacity. In addition to that, the chemical agents that they need to actually make the determination whether or not you're positive is not readily available. I mean, they, they're in the production of these agents, if you will, on a regular basis as well. So it's almost a matter of, you know, I've got a lot of cars, but I don't have enough gas to put in all of them, right? I wouldn't say it's an intentional effort on behalf of the of the state, uh, but certainly there are some reasons as to why uh, there's such a lag between the, the number of people that need the test and the number of people that are able to actually get the test. There is some science behind, I think, part of the problem or part of the reason for the problem, I should yeah. say. So, so we know that communities of color are disproportionately impacted by the virus. Do you have any sense that there's a prioritization of communities of color in testing? Or is it simply a matter of anybody who wants a test can get a test? It seems to me that you would prioritize the testing if you had a really good handle on where the virus was, uh, especially racial or uh, other kinds of data, which as you know, Texas doesn't produce in a, uh, in a meaningful way. And I know you've tried to, you tried to push for the collection of that data, but do you get a sense that there's any kind of prioritization of testing? So many of our workers are essential uh, workers. They're frontline people. I think that that you have to, just as a business person, look at the fact that uh, African Americans and Latinos are more likely to contract the disease just based upon their population as well as the types of work and jobs that they have. You look at those neighborhoods where those those workers come from, and you are addressing the need in those neighborhoods just based upon who the frontline workers are. I think that we've done a pretty good job of that. I really salute our congressional leaders and our state leaders. I enjoy working with these folks because they are truly advocating for their communities. Again, the question becomes, is there enough resource coming from the state and federal level to make sure that we have enough of these pop-up locations. Certainly, they are in black and brown communities. I can attest to that because I often hear from uh, some of the white communities saying, hey, there's no testing in my area whatsoever. And that's not necessarily the case. Uh, but certainly, the availability, the promotion of where these locations are, it's very clear that they are in black and brown communities, as they rightfully should be, again, because uh, those are the frontline workers that are uh, most likely to contract the disease based upon the types of occupations uh, that they have. Again, going back to the fact that we've got to, you know, we've got to work towards this cure. That has to be the number one focus, making sure that that vaccine is available by a year in, because you're going to look at a whole another year of, of trying to get everybody vaccinated. 
making sure that all the, uh, the, the contact tracers, uh, people are employed and they're out making sure that those who we've identified as testing positive, we can then find out who else is within that person's circle of friends and relationships so that we can get those people tested too. And again, try to stop the spread. As you just stated, you know, we're, we're going to have uh, more people in our communities impacted. Yes, we already know that, which means a larger percentage are, are going to test positive and a larger percentage are going to die. So let's pivot a little bit to jobs because the Urban League has a history, uh, a storied history of trying to make sure that um, African-American communities and underserved communities have economic parity and jobs and job training. Your own affiliate uh, has been a real community leader in those uh, measures. But let's talk about jobs and job growth that you've seen in the greater uh, Houston area. We've seen uh, recent numbers coming out from the Labor Department about millions of jobs coming back, millions of people uh, becoming employed again. Are you feeling that on the ground in the greater Houston area? And uh, we've got a looming discontinuance of this $600 per month pandemic unemployment compensation. With with that coming to an end, do you have much hope that jobs are coming back in a way that can really help the greater Houston economy uh, recover? I'm very, very concerned about that, Clint, because, you know, we we are seeing about a 13 to 15 percent unemployment rate here in our state. And and obviously, African-Americans always, you know, five to six percentage points at minimum higher. Uh, so if that, if in fact that's the case and we're pushing close to a 20% unemployment rate once all the data really shakes out. And then if you look at the types of jobs that African-Americans uh, typically have, again, these are, these are more of the uh, types of jobs that require contact with other people. They're in the service line jobs. They're in the types of jobs that either technology can replace or they just become a job that, you know, is going to go away. Uh, and, and we're just going to pivot towards another way of delivering that good or service. Maybe we're not going to have as many bars and restaurants open because everyone will be doing, you know, some type of, um, of delivery system uh, that's different. And, and that means that we're either going to be in that space or perhaps we don't have, you know, the level of transportation that others do. So therefore we can't. It's a real challenge for us. So we are trying to and had been working on the next generation of what work looks like here in Houston, uh, working with a program called Upskill. So trying to make sure that people got the necessary skills that they needed to ensure that they were prepared for the workforce of the 21st century. And that required some time. And, and the community colleges and the urban leagues and others were doing the work of actually getting people prepared for these types of jobs. And so now that's kind of taken a different approach. Industry is focused on survival right now. People are not focused on the traditional things that we had been prior to the pandemic. And so once this is all over, we don't know where all that stands, but we worry about what happens during the interim and what's going to happen to so many people that are currently our clients who are in programs, who are trying to now go online and learn all the different things that we were teaching uh, actually in classroom. It's a learning curve for us all because it's all pivoting and, and moving very quickly. But if people don't mask up, if they don't stay home, if we can't control the spread, it's just going to keep 
diverting our attention to something that's not uh, what it was prior to the pandemic, which was trying to get our communities upskilled as best as we possibly could. So we're very concerned. It's one of those things we're going to have to try to continue to uh, work on. We're doing like everyone else. We're, we're doing Zoom calls for uh, a lot of different programs that we used to not do. Uh, we're learning how to really be effective in that space. It's still not quite what it was. For those of us who live outside of the great, greater Houston area, people listening in today, what are some things that we can do to help the greater Houston Urban League in this moment? Uh, you've talked a little bit about some of the job training work that you're doing, perhaps work that you're doing in food security, uh, anything. What, what are the ways that we can help you, Justin? Well, thank you for that. We really appreciate the fact that we're getting a chance just to answer that question. Here in Houston, being a coastal city, if you will, uh, we, we are accustomed to emergencies, be it tropical storms, hurricanes, whatever the case may be, and now a pandemic. And so we're, we're accustomed to being in a position of trying to respond from a disaster response point of view. And this one is different in that we cannot necessarily have close contact with people. We're in the process right now, for example, of giving grants to people who uh, were impacted uh, by, by coronavirus. And so trying to get these little stimulus checks to people is different than what it was in previous disasters. We could interview someone, we could talk to them face-to-face, we could collect their data, uh, make sure they qualified and give them whatever resource it was that we had to give them. So, you know, now that, that process is different. We're, we're very concerned about our staff, making sure they remain safe and able to help persons who are seeking our assistance. Over the past several years, we've, we've developed a program called Safe Houston, Operation Safe Houston. And that program is, first of all, just making sure that the clients that we already serve who are impacted by storms or other things in the economy, whatever the case may be, that they are as safe as possible. So we are doing, you know, follow-up call checks on them, making sure that they've got food, making sure their bills are still being paid, their lights are on, their utilities, et cetera. Uh, so we do these, these quality checks to help people make sure that they're as good as possible. With this pandemic, they're doing the same thing, but that means I've got to make sure that my staff, is as safe as possible. I've got to make sure that when you call, someone can answer the phone. And with, of course, the impact to various types of fundraisers that we do, our gala, the national conference, all types of things that were planned for our affiliate this year were impacted. So we're having to really ensure that the resources are coming in so that we can continue to provide services to people uh, whom we are being contracted to to help, for example, the Greater Houston Community Foundation, which when you think about that word, or words, Greater Houston Community Foundation, here's a group of foundations that have come together to ensure that whenever there's problems like we have in the city of Houston, that they can fund the agencies to help support the people who are impacted. So we're one of those agencies that's received over $600,000, not for the agency, but for us to put those resources back into the hands of the people who really, really need it. I've got to make sure my people can process that work. We've got to make sure we're there to answer the phone, to find a way to get the monies to the people that are in need. So they've got to be safe. They've got to be healthy. So we ask, without having all the fundraisers that we typically do, to make sure that our people are in place, to make sure that we can then help others 
we have to ask for resources to come to the Urban League so that we're in a position to continue doing the workforce training uh, by Zoom, to make sure that we're still doing the educational read-alouds by Zoom, to make sure that we can still get these checks into the hands of people that need it most in whatever the capacity that we're able to deliver that, we have to make sure we're, we're able to do that. So we really have to be an agency that's sound. And so I, I guess my ask would be to send uh, the Urban League your financial support so that we're in a position to continue to reach the 10,000 plus people that we do every year, helping to make sure they can buy a home, they can start a business, they don't lose their home to foreclosure, that their children are still receiving the educational needs that they have in terms of books and computers, et cetera, that people are getting the meals that they need. All those things require people. And, and the people are what make the Urban League the agency that's able to help other people. Well, on that note, Judson, we are going to close. We know we've kept you for an exceedingly long time today, and, and we appreciate you taking the time you know, the work that you're doing on the ground and your, your staff is doing on the ground is really making a big difference. And we want to support and, and lift up that work. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your talent. And we look forward to the time when we can all be together again in person. So thank you again. We hope you have a wonderful day. Great to be with you. To learn more about how the Houston Area Urban League is impacting the community and ways you can get involved, Visit us online at haul.org, follow us on Twitter at HOU Urban League, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcasting platform you enjoy. Thanks for listening to Empower, presented by the Houston Area Urban League.